I want to talk today about Faith Challenged, and this is a title that, for me, is um, means my faith sometimes is challenged. My faith sometimes needs to be challenged. And whether you know it or not, someday your faith will be challenged. There's a lot that goes into those two words. Um, my prayer for you is that your faith is never challenged from the outside. I hope you never go any, through anything that challenges your faith. I hope you don't go through tragic loss that's inexplicable. I hope you don't face an illness or a sickness and it feels like God is not listening to your prayers. I hope that the cares of this life stay out of your life to the extent that you believe in God from now until the day you draw your last breath and it never crosses your mind that you've been abandoned or it never crosses your mind that he's slow to move or that he doesn't care about you. I hope that for all of you. But I'm realistic and I know that sometimes the cares of this life challenge our faith. And they do that because we lose people that should not have died. They were too young. They were too innocent. It's not fair. We have a God that performs miracles and he didn't perform a miracle. That challenges your faith. Now you may say, it didn't really challenge mine. I still believe in God. But there's a moment of darkness and pain somewhere in there where at least in one prayer you go, God, you could have. You did not. That's a challenge to your faith. Now you pass it. Hopefully you will pass it. But um, I could list a thousand things from the outside world that could challenge your faith. And it, all it would do is depress us because that's the darkness of the world. Let's don't do that. So I pray you never face it. I know you might. In fact, I know you probably will. There's another kind of challenge to your faith that is not tragedy. Losing loved ones, going bankrupt, getting cancer. Uh, God didn't do this like you hoped. The other kind of challenge to your faith is, ends with a question mark. Is God? Does God? Are you sure there's a God? What about this other God? What about this guy? What about this religion? What about this topic? What about this holy book? What about this story? What about this miracle? Those are challenges to your faith that are verbal. They come from people who are witnessing to you about their faith telling you about their religion, questioning the validity of yours, trying to poke holes in your Bible, trying to poke holes in your history, trying to poke holes in your religion. They're bringing up all the bad stuff. They're bringing up people who are fakes. They bring up hypocrites. They bring up atrocities performed in the name of God. History's full of them. People whose blood was shed while someone held up a cross and said, in the name of Jesus, this person must die. And they bring that up to you as an evidence that your faith is no better than anybody else's faith. Those are going to be attacks that challenge your faith that ends with question marks. How can you believe this? Why would you think that? I pray that doesn't happen to you. Odds are it, ha it will. It, odds are it has. If it hasn't, it probably will if you believe long enough. Whether it happens from the outside by circumstances or it happens with a question mark, it needs to happen. If it doesn't happen from those two, then you need to do it. You need to challenge your own faith because you need to find out what holds up under the crucible of scrutiny. You need to take your faith and you need to place it in the center and you need to let it be attacked. And if not by the outside forces of the world or the questions of other faiths or other religions, then by you. And I want to present to you today that I think I can make a New Testament argument that that's actually your responsibility as a believer in Jesus is to frequently challenge your own faith. 
Because without frequent challenges to your faith, you are the athlete that talks about playing but never has a game until the muscles atrophy and the talent wanes and the skill set goes down and you have glory days in your past, but not a whole lot going on in your present and definitely not much going to happen in your future. Unchallenged faith is little more than a head full of knowledge. And I'm not saying it needs totally challenged out of the gate. Someone first comes to Jesus and then we go to work challenging their faith. There needs to be a root system a strengthening, a foundation that grows and understanding the love of God. But there also needs to be an understanding that faith needs to go through the crucible at some point to find out what it's worth. That's what we're going to work on today. And I want to do it in a way where we give a Jesus story and we're going to talk a little bit about faith as a concept, faith as a theology. And then we're going to do some simple points. We're going to challenge your faith in just two ways. We could do 50, but we're just going to do two because I want, you to be, I want it to be memorable and easy for you to walk away and say, these are a couple of things to think about and challenge my faith, and I want to give a couple of faith promises on top of those challenges. The kind of thing that you can walk away with something that you can go immediately begin to apply in your life. Hopefully even before you leave this room. In that final prayer, you can begin that faith challenge just to find out a little bit about. And I want to warn you, when you talk about stuff like this, there is absolutely a, a, a portion of introspection that is necessary. So if you are of a grace mindset that says self-introspection is not grace, self-introspection is law, well, you're just not going to like this. So if you clicked over here to watch this about faith challenge, but you don't think grace ever self-evaluates, I totally disagree. Grace does self-evaluate. It doesn't condemn but it does self-evaluate because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And you're trying to live that out and you want to live that out. Self-evaluation is going to happen. Let me start with a quote from Callistos Ware, the Metropolitan of the Eastern Orthodox Church. I should have capitalized Metropolitan. That's Eastern Orthodox for basically the guy above a bishop. True faith is a constant dialogue with doubt. Listen to this. I know this isn't scripture, but this is, this is pretty good. True faith is a constant dialogue with doubt for God is incomparably greater than all our preconceptions about him. Our mental concepts are idols that need to be shattered. You've heard me say before that sometimes what we do is create a golden calf version of God that is not God, that looks like we think God should look, and that what you do with golden calves is you grind them into ash, put them in the water, and get rid of them. And that all of us have golden calf versions of God that need shattered that can only happen if we're in a constant dialogue with our own doubts. So to be fully alive, our faith needs continually to die. Ooh, what's that mean? I agree with that. That's the reason I put it up here. I'm not, I'm not critiquing this statement. I'm not saying it's gospel or scripture, but I'm saying that it's very important to consider that your faith needs to continually die in order to be fully alive means something in you needs to be in constant transformation phase, repentance phase, that a piece of you that you are so in love with now is slowly but surely transforming into the you that could be. And that part of that is your faith. The things you believe very firmly in, the things you hold very firmly to, need a transformation. If we did not need that transformation, then we would not need to keep talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. Who cares? If salvation were, I got everything I needed when I said yes to Jesus, no matter what you see on the outside, and now I'm going home to be with Jesus when I die, then we don't need to talk to people about the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Who cares? Why do we keep having church? Why do we keep having service? What's the point of this? Just to get together and pat each other on the back and build stuff? 
We are undergoing a transformation. We are undergoing a complete overhaul. And so there's a portion of that that needs to die. Let me start with a very simple story from Mark 1. Part of this was birthed out of my DDP journey of the last couple of weeks. We've been walking verse by verse through Mark. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee in verse 16. He sees Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And he speaks their language. They're fishermen, so he uses fishing speech. He could have said anything. But in this case, we've used this forever as the discipleship code. We need to become fishers of men. Fishing for people. That's kind of how we say that. Really, only Jesus only uses the illustration because they're fishermen. In other words, I will make you do what it is you do now. Work, function, produce. I'll just have you doing it in another dimension. Fishers of men. And look how long it takes them to decide. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so this has been used as an example of what discipleship should look like in its first stages. Where Jesus gives the presentation and then we receive it. Now I want to talk about faith for a moment. And I want to talk about it in the general and then I want to talk about it in the specific. Let me start with the general idea of faith. You've heard me mention that faith is essentially a call to adventure, and to do that we often talk about Abraham because the first biblical story of faith and the understanding of faith is the story of Abraham. And when God says in the book of Genesis to Abraham, leave the land of your fathers and go to a land that I will show you, he doesn't choose the wise or the noble or the good or the righteous or the holy. He picks the willing and so the call to adventure is not the call to the brightest and the best. It's the call to the any man, to all of us, so that God finds all of us where we are and says, hey, go do. So in a very general term, if I wanted to generally define faith, faith is the, is the call to go. God says go and you go. Sometimes it looks like Jonah. God says go, do what I told you to do. Sometimes it looks like Abraham. God said go and I'll show you when you get there. But in any case, it's a call to adventure. It's not a call to ease. It's not a call to simplicity. Adventure doesn't mean fun. Some days it means fun, but adventure can very much be the very opposite of fun. So faith is not a call to fun. But faith is a call to something you don't know. It's a call to somewhere you haven't been. If we had that, though, we wouldn't need Jesus. There's no Jesus there, right? I mean, the call of Abraham is an Old Testament call. The call to adventure is every single person in the world has a call to adventure. When you took your job, that was a call to adventure. When you moved to your house, that was a call to adventure. When you married your spouse, that was a call to adventure. When you decided you were going to be a parent, welcome to the adventurous world of being a parent. There's all kinds of things you do. that You, don't, you wouldn't need Jesus for any of them, and it's a call to go. So it's move out into the next space. But here's a very specific, this is Christianity faith. When we talk about faith, we're not just talking about general faith. We're talking about the very specific idea that we're followers of Jesus. It's not a call, it's an invitation. True faith is not just being called to go do, it's being invited into Him. It's an invitation of Jesus. More than a call to adventure, it's a call to discipleship. We can't lose the the necessity, that's not the right word, we can't use, lose the utility of the word discipleship. That we are disciples of a master, a mentor, a Lord, a Savior. In all of our father-son talk, and man, do we need father-son talk. We can't lose the idea that we're disciples. Right? I mean, because it's easy to, for us to say the church needs to know more that they're sons. Amen. Church needs to know more that they're daughters. Amen. Church needs to know they're the bride. Amen. Church needs to know they're disciples. Amen. 
There's not a lot of amens that go follow that one because it's more fun to be sons and daughters than the bride. But the disciple, of course, there's a molding and a shaping and, and sometimes it feels like a pulling that's happening because it's not a command to go, it's an invitation. Frankly, it's a call to follow. So God tells Abraham, go. Jesus on the deck of Peter's boat says, follow me. I'm about to turn around and step off of this boat. And if you want, if you want a great adventure... Yes, because all of that's general faith. But I'm inviting you to me. I'm inviting you to go live my life. I'm inviting you to walk where I walk and talk where I talk. I'm inviting you to live the way I live. And sometimes people came to Jesus thinking they were ready. And Jesus said, be sure, because foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was Jesus' way of saying, it's an adventure, all right. Are you sure you want to live it? Following me isn't always the greatest the easiest, the wealthiest, the smoothest. And if you're willing to take that call, if you're willing to take that invitation, then come follow me and I'm going to show you some amazing stuff. And you're going to see, that's like what he said to Nathaniel, you're going to see the heavens open and angels go up and down on the Son of Man. I'm going to be pulling heaven into the dimension of this earth and I'm going to show what my dad looks like. And sometimes it's going to draw crowds and sometimes it's going to repel them. And sometimes it's going to excite people and sometimes it's going to incite people. That's what it means to follow Jesus is that some days it's going to be a thrilling, amazing, exciting adventure where you can almost feel the anointing like chill bumps. And other days it's going to be into the depths, down in the dark. Why am I following? What are we doing? Is God listening? And he's no farther away in the question mark, in the darkness and in the pain and in the problem than he is in the exciting goosebump stage of your Christianity. And it really doesn't do any of us any good to try to build bubbles and shelters where people don't question and they don't have darkness because we think we're helping them out. And in effect, we're not. We're just raising kids that never actually get challenged in the world. And then, and I'm not talking about raising actual kids. I'm talking about raising up disciples in Jesus that never face any problems. They never face any difficulties. They never question whether God's real. They never question whether God cares because we won't let them because we tell them that that's a doubting spirit and that's of the devil. And if you go down that road, you're going to be led astray. And then they have no equipment. They've never, ever really faced the question and challenged their own faith. And then when someone comes along with a well-cogent, well-organized argument and knocks the props out from under their faith, we wonder why they run from God and backslide and hate the church and don't want anything to do with the Lord. We never, ever let them fall down and scrape their knee and then just help them back up. Instead, we've softened all the playgrounds. So that when they hit the ground, they'll bounce instead of bleed. And we're doing that in the spiritual sense to where we make it, we're trying to make it a sanitized Christianity. This is supposed to be bloody. I don't mean warriors <laughs> slitting throats, but you're going to get hurt some following Jesus. You're going to get mocked. You're going to get laughed at. You're going to get cussed out. You're going to get abandoned. You're going to get turned on. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to get ignored. You're going to get overlooked. You're going to get your feelings hurt. You're going to get offended. If you haven't yet, you will. And if you haven't, it could be that you've been sheltered in your faith to the point that it's never been allowed to, to expand and to grow. And if they haven't challenged you yet in the world, get ready to do it yourself. 
a necessity, a necessary part of your walk. Let's start with faith challenge number one. I got two of them. I got a hundred of them, but we're going to do two. All right. I don't really have a hundred. I got like 90. (laughs) Faith challenge number one. Am I a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? This has been really bugging me this week. I am a fan of Jesus. I'm kind of a fanatic of Jesus. That's the short form of fanatic is fan. I love stories about him, books about him. I love thinking about him, talking about him, talk to him. But my challenge in my faith is Jesus did not come for admirers, adherents, or even worshipers. Jesus came for disciples. Jesus asked you to follow his life. Now, I don't like the phrase, the Bible is clear. (laughs) You know why. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't have so much argument over what is apparently clear. But I do think that if you study the four Gospels account of Jesus, not other people's books about Jesus or movies or songs about Jesus, just the four Gospels account about Jesus, I think it's pretty evident Jesus wants people to follow him. I don't think it's nearly as evident that Jesus wants people to be impressed by his speech, memorize his sermons, or fall on their face and worship him. He doesn't walk into rooms looking to see who will praise him. We don't see Jesus entering to go, I'm going to find the true worshipers in this room, and them my Father shall bless. Instead, he calls people in their sin, in their, not out of their sin, in their sin, come follow me. You want, a, you want a great adventure? We'll do better. I won't cast you. I won't send you. I'll take you. Let's go. Follow me and watch how I do it. And we're going to eat with sinners and we're going to eat with publicans and stuff's going to get filthy. It's going to get dirty. It's going to get rough. It's going to, it's going to, we're going to get muddy. We're going to get our hands dirty. We are literally going to spit on the ground and put mud on blind people's eyes. And, and we're really going to reach down and write in the dirt when we're talking to some woman that just got caught in the act of adultery and... It's going to be hard, and I, but I ask you to come follow me. And I don't see Jesus waiting on who's impressed with his words or who's memorized his stories. We are in a worship-centric culture for the last generation in the church. That was the, that was the church I was raised up in. Now, I came up in a kind of a crossover. I was in sort of a backwoods part of the world where everything happened 20 years past when it happened everywhere else. So being raised in the like late 70s, early 80s where I grew up, the church was kind of in the late 50s, <laughs> late 50s, early 60s in the way that they uh, sort of viewed the world and whatever. And, and so there was an accelerant that happened somewhere a decade or two after that, that kind of started to pull the church, and man, they pulled kicking and screaming into, into the future. But we, I was in that sort of that crossover, so there was a lot of the old way that we kind of think of now as old way, and then there was this new thing, and those it was trying to drag <laughs> us into the new way to worship, the new way to praise, and then and and it's they, they went at each other. Like the new way mocked the old way as much as the old way mocked the new way. It wasn't a one-sided thing, you know. Uh, It was very much a battle um, in the way we worshiped, the way we preached, the way we had church, the way we dressed, uh, everything. Um, That was my my sort of environment. Um, So I came, but 
but as a young guy that as a kid, I don't know what year, I know the general area. I remember there being a shift in the church. We were probably behind the times is my point, but I remember there being a shift where it became, we became sort of way less word centric and way more worship centric. I remember that transition where it was less about what the word says in the sermon and what that does to you and way more about how you respond to the Holy Spirit in worship. So worship became like the centerpiece of church. When I was a kid, that wasn't the case. Worship was the salad and the word was the steak. And then somewhere it flipped. Worship was everything and the word was the tack on you know, mini dessert at the end, kind of before you got done. And I'm not saying it was right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how I, that's how I saw it. What I think it's done is create a worship centric mindset in a lot of Christians. And my fear in worship centric mindset is that we think we're supposed to live to worship. We even say it like I live to worship the Lord. Part of my life is to worship the Lord. And I'm not being ticky tack or picky, but the reality is, is you were never called, you were never asked to follow Jesus so that you would be a good praiser, a good worshiper, but so that you would follow him. And here's why that's essential because worship can tend, can, can tend toward an event. We've even turned event into a worship. You can rent an arena, bring a bunch of worshipers in and a bunch of bands in and a bunch of singers in and have an event of worship. And worship as an event then does not require worship as a lifestyle because there is no such thing as worship as a lifestyle as much as we want to make worship a lifestyle. I think worship as a lifestyle was a marketing ploy to push worship. Jesus doesn't invite you to worship consistently. Jesus invites you to follow him. And in the real world, you will not be able to worship consistently because sometimes you will be flat on your back and beat half to death and ready to quit. And there's no worship in that. There's survival. And Jesus will invite you into that to go, come follow me, man. It isn't always going to be easy, but come follow me. I'm not asking you to memorize my stuff. I'm not asking you to adhere to my principles. I'm not asking you to fall down and worship me. I am asking you to follow. Jesus didn't come for those other things. This, this is, to me, the key verse. You had to know this was coming. Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's the very definition of discipleship. There's what Jesus actually invites you to do. He's like, well, what does he want out of me? This. If you follow me, pick up the cross to follow me. And it's not a once a week. It's not when you feel like it. It's not if you're up. It's daily picking up the cross. Now, just as I did general faith, specific faith, let me do general. I, I didn't put the screen up. This is just something I want to share with you. Let me do general interp, specific interp. General interp, you've got a burden in your life. You better pick it up, carry it up the hill, because if you don't, no one else is going to. General interpretation, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. What is it? I don't know. Are you, do you have physical malady? You can lay at home whine about it, or you can go beat it. Your call. Pick up your cross and follow him or don't. But no one else is going to pick it up. There are some things that belong to you that you have to carry. General interpretation of this verse, pick up your cross because crosses don't ever get carried downhill. Crosses always get carried uphill. So don't pick something easy because something easy is something you can shove down a hill. 
No, you don't get to pick something easy. You get to pick something hard. And if you want to be the very best version of yourself on the earth, here's a great challenge. Pick the very hardest thing you could possibly do and do it. That will make you the very best version of yourself. The easiest, cheapest version of yourself is pick the easiest thing you can do and do it. If you've never picked anything, start with the easy thing. It'd be good to start somewhere. Pick something you could change and change it. That'd be a good place to start. It's not a good place to end, but it's a good place to start. And eventually, pick the heaviest cross you can find. Go around the cross yard, picking up cross beams, until there's one you can just barely get off the ground and go, that's the one that I'm going to carry because that will make me the best version of me. That's a general, you wouldn't have to be a Christian to get anything out of that interpretation. I actually love how the Bible can speak into lives, even if they go, well, I'm not a Christian. They can still hear a verse, hear a, a principle, and it apply. But, but we're followers of Jesus. So what would it specific, what's a specific interp for followers of Jesus? Well, Jesus invites you into picking up the thing that makes you ostracized, possibly hated, possibly persecuted, that would go away if you just stopped following Jesus. So I ask you, what cross are you carrying that would go away if you just stopped following Jesus? Now, this might be the best challenge to your faith you've ever had. If it's pretty smooth sailing and there's really not anything you can come up with, then I want you to ask yourself, what is it about your faith that makes you different than if you had never met Christ? I don't know the answer to this for you. I'm not supposed to know the answer to this for you. I'm still working on the answer to this for me. What, would, what does Paul White have on a day-to-day -day basis that if that has to do with following Jesus, that if he would just stop following Jesus, would go away? What persecution, what tribulation, what discouragement, what challenge am I carrying? Congratulations, when you can figure out what it is, that's. The cross you carry for following Jesus. That if you would stop following Jesus, it would automatically drop off. Now, I don't know what yours is. But my suspicion is that for a lot of us, the more comfy we get in our lane of being a Christian and surviving in the world, it becomes harder for us to find things that if we stopped following Jesus would fall away from our lives that are burdensome. That's my challenge. You don't have to make it your challenge, but it's my challenge of faith is to go, what am I carrying that I carry because I believe in Jesus? That if I stopped believing in Jesus, I could just let go of that. And my life in the way the world looks at life would get a little better. What area of my life would get a little smoother, a little easier, a little softer, a little easier to land on if I just gave up this Jesus stuff? If I just stopped believing on Him, what area might be a little better? And wherever you can identify that, don't run from it. Embrace it. Maybe it's the cross that you bear in denying yourself to take up your cross to follow Him. Now, in an immediate context, Jesus is talking to people who some of them were going to die for the faith. And so Jesus is saying, hey, some of you, he even turns around two verses later and goes, some of you won't die until you see the Son of Man coming in glory. But some of you are going to. So in an immediate context, yes, there was physical death. It's not always the context that we have. Um, let me go back. Let's go back to the boat. 
Let me show you something. When Jesus stopped speaking, we're in Luke 5. I, I, I read the first time in Mark, but this is the same story. This is the Luke version of the same Jesus on the boat story. When he stopped talking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. i got to speed up. <laughs> and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Sometimes when your nets are breaking, it's the result of a blessing. It's not always the result of the devil. Some things in your life snap because you got to move on to better nets. It's just straight up. I mean, we just need to realize that not everything goes wrong in our life. We always blame the devil. It would have been typical of us. If we were in this boat, we would have cursed the devil right here. Every one of us would have said, in the name of Jesus, I command these nets to work. And Jesus is going, guys, just, I'm breaking the nets, not the devil. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Sometimes your nets need to break so that you'll stop trying to do things by yourself. Gosh, don't you love the Bible? What a beautiful way of just, just let the word wash you sometimes. You go, maybe some of this stuff's falling apart in my life because I'm trying to do it by myself. There's other boats out there I could call. They came and filled both the boats. Well, look at that. If you call your buddies over there, they get blessed too. They didn't even do anything. Because you are so valuable as a disciple that your presence with non-disciples will make a difference in non-disciples. The other boats don't even know what's going on. They get fish. Because God's no respecter of persons. So he is not just wanting to bless you. He wants to bless anything you're nearby or anything you touch. But to do it, you're going to have to call some boats in. And you're going to have to quit complaining about broken nets. And once that happens, we can become a blessing to other people. They begin to sink. Uh-oh problems. You're not always sinking because you're supposed to go down. Okay. Sometimes there's a sinking for a different reason. And Simon saw it. That caused him to fall down at Jesus' knees. Here comes a worshiper, by the way. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now I just want to pause right here and say, what causes Peter to say, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Not a sermon on the Ten Commandments, not a sermon of condemnation, not Jesus going, I know what you did last night and what you did the week before, and I know how you're ripping people off, and I know you're a cheater. No. Jesus blessed him with a net-breaking, boat-sinking load of fish, and that caused him to realize he's a sinner because the goodness of God leads men to repent. And if we would let God be good to people we don't want God to be good to, we might see people doing the things we wish people would do. And so a lot of times we have picked people out in our lives that we don't think are deserving or don't think are worthy and we don't realize that they're just in the other boat. God would gladly give them fish and that that very revival of fish, when we're all talking about revival in a church, it's always moralities and people need to stop sinning and we ought to be praying for people to encounter the goodness of God in the middle of their sin. That ought to be our prayer. God, we're in a city full of sin. Bless every one of them, Jesus. Bless every one of those heathens. Pour out your blessings in their homes, in their bodies, in their minds, in their marriages, in their jobs. Pour it out to where they know they weren't smart enough to figure that out. That had to be a miracle. And maybe some of them will fall on their knees and go, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. This is what we want people to do. This is what gets all excited in the church. We want people falling down under the weight of sin. How do you get them there? Net breaking loads of fish. Bless. 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 This is the call of discipleship as well. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And 
So was James, so was John, son of Zebedee. Everybody was, everybody was, not just Peter. They're partners with Simon and Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. This is the Mark 1. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook it all and they followed him. That's the Mark story fleshed out across time. Just a little bit longer, a little more color, a little more fullness, a little more detail. What's really happening? Come follow me. You guys want to be disciples? Come follow me. Get up off your fandom. Get up off your fanatic stage and become a follower. My fear is that the church is full of Jesus fans. Not necessarily Jesus followers. Jesus fans are really good at Jesus stickers, Jesus shirts, Jesus bracelets, and worshiping. Jesus followers love their enemies. Pray for their persecutors. Turn the other cheek. Help the poor. Bless the heartbroken. They spend their lives looking for the one to bless that's undeserving and unworthy and can't pay them back. Being a Jesus fan is low-hanging fruit. It's easy. Jesus fans are easy to come up with, too, because people want to be a part of big, bombastic, exciting things. And there ain't nothing bigger and more bombastic and exciting than a crowd around a thing. That's why we call them fanatics. Go to a ball game, fanatics. We're all excited. We're cheering. We're all wearing the same colors. It's easy to get along with people because we got camaraderie. We're all talking about the same thing. No one's in there dropping a grenade of, of argument against your team. They don't get beat up, right? You go from fan to follower. That's a different world. All right, faith challenge two. We're never going to get done. I know you can feel it. Got to speed up. Faith challenge number two, is my faith a decisive act or a system of beliefs? Man, this is big. In case that sentence didn't make sense, let me ask it another way. Is my Christianity full of life or is it full of moral codes? Okay, that one's easier. Is my Christianity full of the life of God or is it full of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs? This one's easy to answer. Not so easy to switch. If the answer is, yeah, I got a lot of moral codes. In fact, most people will defend their moral code Christianity. If called on the carpet, is your life full of life or is it full of moral codes? They'll go, it's full of both. Can't have the life of God without the moral code. I'll defend the moral code till I'm dead. And here comes Jesus into a world full of moral codes. That's his biggest arguments with the Pharisees. They are the moral code police. Literally. They literally, I'm not even being allegorical. They are the moral code police of Judaism, first century temple worship. Why is Jesus always into it with the Pharisees? Jesus brings life, they bring moral code. Life and moral code do not always set together. I didn't say they're naturally at odds with one another. Moral codes can be a really good thing for you to govern your life, put some fences up in your life and go, I'm not going to cross that line because I know what that does to me. That's a moral code for me. When moral codes become your way of presenting the gospel, they can stifle the life other people are trying to bring into God because they become our codes, our ideas, our church's codes, our denomination's codes, our doctrine's codes until they don't listen for where real people live. This is why you will be very, you will have moments of extreme discomfort if you are a Democrat. You will have moments of extreme discomfort if you are a Republican. Why? Because you're a disciple of Jesus. I didn't say one over the other, by the way. You will have moments of extreme discomfort 
when you slide into the camp defined by the systems of the world. I didn't say they're demonic, wicked, need to go away. I said, you are a follower of Jesus. And when you get over here, or you get over here, there's going to be discomfort at times. There's going to be something in there that goes, I don't know if I can follow Jesus and that. So what has happened traditionally in the church is that we went, all right, that's out. I'm going back to Jesus. But what's happening in the church is, I'll bring Jesus over here with me. And then verse after verse, book after book, sermon after sermon on why Jesus would be this if he were here today. Why Jesus would be that if he were here today as a way of justifying where I am right now. So I took my discomfort and I pulled Jesus in there with me. And your faith needs to always be in trouble when it's confronted with other things so that your faith is what gets challenged and the call to follow pulls you out of camps. That Jesus comes over to your camp and goes, come follow me. And you go, yeah, but thou look a lot like that other side if I do that. And he goes, I'm not taking you to the other side. I'm asking you to follow me. Sometimes follow me is follow into a place where others don't follow. Well, what will other people think of me? And so we don't think about this in some situations, but once it becomes relevant and real to go, I need to start to consider that my faith is a daily, daily event, not a Sunday event, not a what political party event, not what piece of legislation, event, a daily event that is constantly needing tweaked, constantly needing tweaked, constantly under the scrutiny of Jesus. Where does this not look like Jesus? Where does this look like Jesus? I want to follow Jesus. Yeah, but that'll make you look like this side. I'm going to follow Jesus as far as I can get. Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus as close as it gets to there. And then I know there's a couple of places over here that look an awful lot like this side. That's okay. I'm going to follow Jesus. I trust Jesus. I'm walking on water with Jesus because I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't have a system of beliefs because what happens is if faith is a system of beliefs, Faith may not necessarily have been a decisive act for you. It will just be falling into the line of moral codes that you're supposed to fall in line with. And some of them won't feel right. That's because your faith is going, come follow me. Yeah, but I got this system. I'm more. Come follow me. You know, what's a good example? I read the stories of Jesus, but we do not heal on the Sabbath. That's work. It's been that way for centuries. If you do it, they're going to kill you. Yeah, but this guy's sick. And I could heal him. Yeah, but he'll be sick tomorrow. He's been sick for 30 years. What's one more day? Right? He'll still be here tomorrow. He ain't going anywhere. You could make both sides happy. Don't heal him today. Healing tomorrow. They're happy because you didn't heal him today. He's happy because you're healing tomorrow. Oh, there's a little bitty window in there where he's still sick and they're wondering if you're going to do it. But you know, you could get away from all of that. What's Jesus' pick? And you might say, Jesus picks healing. No, Jesus picks, what do you want to do, Father? 
Because there are moments when I watch Jesus in the story and I go, why didn't he heal more people there? He could have healed 10 people. He healed one. He goes to a hospital in John, open-air hospital. Bethesda heals one guy. It's an open-air hospital. You mean to tell me they got one guy in the hospital? He heals one guy. I don't know why he doesn't heal a thousand, but I do know that he tells us a few chapters later, whatever my dad says do, that's what I do. So I can't put a category on what he just pulled off, but it sounds a whole lot like, where do you want to go today, dad? Whatever you want to do, I'll do. They're telling me to do this, and they're telling me to do this, and they're telling me if I do that, I'll die, and they're telling me if I do that, they'll ostracize me. What do you want me to do, Dad? If it kills me, I'll do it. Come follow me, you said. I'll follow you. Where do you want to go? And that's walking right into the place that he would have you to be. Let me show you what this looks like. John 7, 17. We're going to get to the promises. We're going to go quick. I use the NIV for this because it's got a word that's closer to the right word in the Greek. It's that third word, chooses. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Okay. Let me give you context. Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching. And the Bible says just a few verses earlier, I didn't put this up, but I just wanted to talk you into this before you get this verse, before this verse really makes sense. A bunch of people in the room say, he's a good man. The Bible says they murmur amongst themselves. So they kind of whisper it. He's a good man. Now they have to whisper it. Because by the moral code, he's not a good man. Okay? So they go, he's a good man. And the other Bible says, and there were others in the room that said, no, he's a deceiver of men. Jesus hears about it and says, okay, half of you say I'm a good guy. Half of you say I'm a bad guy. You need to make a choice. Here's how to choose. Now, guys, this is backwards. Okay? This is backwards the way we would tell people to choose. Choose to do the will of God, and then you'll find out whether I'm the good guy or the bad guy. Choose to do the will of God, and then it will be clear whether or not Jesus is the one for you. Challenge your faith. Do you just believe in Jesus because you were told to, or do you believe in Jesus because you've been practicing the will of God, which is love God and love your neighbor, And as you practice it, Jesus keeps popping up. And he pops up enough, you go, he's the good guy. In this story, he's the good guy. How do I figure it out? Let the will of God lead my life until Jesus becomes the good guy. I've been saying it to to you this way. Read these stories back here until Jesus shows up. And if you read that and go, I don't know what that means. Move on. Uh, I don't get it. Ooh, that looks like Jesus. Jesus right there. What if you don't find him there? Well, here's, this is how hard this is. You ready? What if you don't find him right here? See how, did you see that? We're going to try it one more time in case you missed it. If you don't see him over here. Okay. And definitely being snarky. Absolutely. What I mean is that Jesus gives you the challenge. I don't. Jesus gives you the challenge. If you choose to do what God wants you to do, that's what will teach you whether or not I'm the one. God wants you to love him and love your neighbor. So give that a shot. As you do, Jesus will start to come to the forefront. Jesus will become the way, the means, and the power to do all of those things. You'll start to realize Jesus is a way for me to love the Father. Jesus is a way for me to love my neighbor. I I am admittedly trying to convince you of that. That's why we're in this room. I am trying to convince you that Jesus is that way. Jesus is just telling you the other way around, going, 
I can't just say to you, believe me. I challenge you to believe me. He goes, how are you going to believe whether I am the good guy or the bad guy? Because the room split 50-50. Am I the good guy or the bad guy? Jesus goes, the only way you're ever really going to know is do what dad says do. And if you do what dad says do, you'll figure it out. Now, that's a risky challenge. Because what do we say to people? They go, hey, go out here this week. Love God, love your neighbor, see what happens. I'm not talking about the path to salvation. In fact, let me make that clear. Faith promise number one. I do not strive to be faithful. I do not strive to earn anything. Being a follower of Jesus is not a journey of quote unquote getting it right. I'm not trying to get stuff from God. That's not what discipleship's about. But faith does require a frequent checkup, like going to the doctor to make sure I'm actually following Jesus. I need to just make sure I'm not following other things because it's easy to follow other things. Make sure I'm actually following Jesus. What would that look like? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. What a great sentence. Let's say it again. Examine yourselves. Not to see if you're still saved, unnecessary. Salvation is not your work, it's His work. Not to see if you're still going to heaven, grace is a gift, you don't earn it. Examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if your faith works. To see if your faith is actually in Jesus, or your faith is in your church, or your pastor, or your spouse, or your intelligence, or your money. And hey man, I just threw a bunch of them out there that are easy to replace your faith. Because it's easy to have faith when you're rich. Let me just say that again. What I mean by that is it's easy to excuse a lot of things and to say, I don't have, I'm trusting God for all these things when there's no financial issues, no health issues, no marital issues, no social issues. Your kids are good. Everybody's healthy, job secure. Everything's on the uptick and you go, I'm full of faith. I've examined myself to see if I'm in the faith. I don't know if any of the criteria you just laid out has anything to do with Jesus. I don't know. I'm not accusing. I know that I've been guilty of that a lot. Like stuff's really squared away. And I'll go, man, God, I've never been so close to you. (laughs) There's been a few moments where he said, son, I ain't heard from you in a while. I mean, I know all your stuff's going right, but where are you? That's not a condemning statement. That's a dad calling out to his son. Son, I know things are good. I'd just like to have coffee with you once in a while. I mean, I know things are going well for you. Does it, the only time you call me when you need money? The only time you call me when you're arrested? The only time you call me when prob- there's problems? Let's examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. Don't you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Well, there you go. Test yourself. Figure out if Jesus is in you. If you can say, yes, Christ is in me, the hope of glory, how do I know? Because grace is a gift and I believe on Christ. Well, that's a good place to start. There's the starting blocks of my faith. Unless you're disqualified, but I trust you know you're not disqualified. Well, okay. Good news. Christ is in me, the hope of glory. He's in me, but am I in him? That's Paul's challenge. Test yourself, see whether you're in the faith. All right, not test yourself, see if you're going to heaven. Some of these promises are really contingent on us understanding grace. Here's your final one. My inner Transformation is directly linked to the action of my faith, not my works. So make faith work. Now dwell on that for a second. I had a man tell me this week, um, he said, I wanted to give you a, he said, if it were proper, I'd give you a hug and a kiss. I told him I was glad it wasn't proper. 
And he said, I, if it were proper, I'd give you a hug and a kiss for your Ephesians lesson on the inseparable bond between grace and works. He said, because I've been a grace guy for years, but I haven't had proper revelation of the works that are supposed to come out of grace. And I knew there was a missing piece in this whole thing. He said, something just didn't feel quite right. It was locking in just right. Okay, I say all of that to you because that's prerequisite classwork for that verse, for this promise, rather. Your inner transformation is, during, is linked to the action of your faith. It's not linked to the action of your works. So make your faith work. It's faith, not what I do. It's faith, who I believe in, that leads to the works of my discipleship. Because discipleship has work involved. And the work doesn't lead to my salvation. The salvation leads to my work. So when we release people into the understanding that they are saved not by works but by faith, don't leave them there in their faith. Teach that faith follows Jesus. Otherwise, they're going to become Jesus fans. And there's a lot of grace Jesus fans. They're fans of the grace message because it set them free. Set me free. Broke me away from religious performance and bondage. Okay, what have you been doing with your faith? Well, I don't want, I don't want to hear about what I need to do because that starts to get into works. Okay, then let's let Paul say it. Because if you don't want this Paul, we're going to use that Paul. Watch the end of... Okay, I put these two back to back because this is a terror. This is an unfortunate break by the translators. In your Bible, 17, 18, 1, 2 are all four verses in a row. In your Bible... They look like the last two verses of three and the first two verses of four. But Paul didn't do that. Paul just kept right on trucking. So let's read them straight. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are currently, are constantly being transformed into His image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry... Too many of us have thought Paul was talking about himself. Transformation is all your, it's your ministry. That's, that's, that's Christ ministering to you. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, don't lose heart. But we've renounced the hidden things of shame. We don't walk in craftiness nor handle the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The Holy Spirit is transforming me. By the Spirit, therefore I lay some stuff down because you can't carry the old you and be a follower of Jesus. So Paul goes, because I'm being transformed, I'm unloading the baggage of the me he met on the boat. And the one he said, come follow me. And I'm, what do you got to let go of? We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. I won't put it back on the screen. What was, what did they do? Come follow me. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him because discipleship is laying down what I was so I can pick up the cross of what I'm about to be. Challenge your faith. Great news. Faith challenged in Christ can be the size of a mustard seed. Jesus goes, how much you have isn't important. He said, but if you got a little bit, he goes, 
I'll change the world. So good news. Faith challenged. You come out of this room, you go, gosh, I don't have much. You go, you're in good shape. You're all right. Why? Jesus said so. Jesus said, you ain't got much? That's cool. Just keep it with me. You and me. If, if, if right now you're, you're more Jesus fan than follower, start with the Jesus part. Drop the fan part. Pick up the follower part. You already got the Jesus. Good place to start. Faith challenge. Jesus. I'm a Jesus fan. I'd like to be a Jesus fan. We got church, churches full of Jesus fans. It's a good place to start. Jesus is at the front of that. Let's move them from fan to follower. Much, much better. That'll stand the scrutiny. That will stand up under all hell breaks loose and junk's happening in my life. And I don't know what I'm going to do. If I'm just a Jesus fan, when, my, when the star leaves the room, I'm on my own. But if I'm a follower, I leave the room with him. That's the crucial part. So let's pray. And this is a challenge prayer for my faith and a challenge prayer for your faith. And you do with it as you will because it's your faith. I can't challenge your faith. You do. I, by the way, you do not get to examine other people in their faith. You examine yourself in your faith, all right? So I can't examine you. I can't examine a ministry. I can't examine a church. People, what do you think about this ministry? I go, I don't play that game. I don't examine other people's stuff. I don't care what they do. I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus one time said, if they're not against me, they must be for me. Don't curse them. Let's leave it at that. So you don't get to think about the other person in the room right now during this prayer. All right? You don't get to think about so-and-so's church. You don't get to think about pastor so-and-so. You don't get to think about that author, that singer, that coworker, that spouse. Mm. It's you. Father, I have been examining myself this week in the faith. I got some Jesus fanboy moments. And I want to know that I'm being transformed into a follower. The first step is the revelation that following is what you're asking me to do, not fan out. I've got that revelation. Now show me the parts of my net I need to drop. Now show me the cross I need to carry. Now show me what discipleship truly looks like. I know that I've got this in so many areas of my life, but I'm also seeing areas where I can still be a follower with my faith challenged. As you challenge our faith in this room and for those watching and for those listening, as you challenge it, give us a revelation of your love and your grace that shows us that even if we end up deconstructing all the way down to a mustard seed... And all we got is, I still believe in the man Jesus. You go, that that's enough. And let's begin there. Teach us to do this daily. And teach us to stop doing it over other people. In Jesus' name. Amen.